Our scripture reading today comes from John 16, 4 through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nonetheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will not see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and that the Father has his mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, if you're newer to Christ's community, you may not know that a part of our mission, and in particular here at the Leewood campus, uh, is around early childhood education. And we've actually launched a preschool. It's called Awesome Kids. And uh, I was talking with Bonnie this week to remind me how long Awesome Kids has been around. And it's been over 20 years that we have had the preschool hosted here, which is pretty cool. One of our favorite things to do as a staff, because our offices are right outside the drop-off for the preschool, is watching preschool drop-offs. It's, it's the absolute best. These, these adorable little kiddos uh, with their backpacks, you know, that are twice their size. And there's nothing in there. There's, they're not carrying anything. It's like a granola bar. But they're learning. They're learning how to, you know, get their stuff and take care of it. And they're holding you know, mom's hand or dad's hand or grandma's hand or grandpa's hand. And they're just marching into school. You cannot help but smile. It's like the best 10 minutes of joy of your morning. But every now and then, and usually around the start of a new semester, this, this happens. Every now and then, you, you see a, a little bit of a different picture. You see a parent and a child uh, like any other uh, and they start to make their way into the preschool, and suddenly the kid realizes what's, what's happening. Uh, and they've never done this before. And the, you know, the child realizes, oh, you're, you're leaving me here with these strangers, these people. And then they either try to run for it, or more often than not, uh, they just start bawling. They just start crying and clinging to mom's leg, dad's leg, grandpa's leg, grandma's leg. Don't, you know, it's like, don't go how could you? You're the worst parent ever. They don't say that part, but the parents feel it. And that's really when you get the popcorn out. That, that's when as a staff, we think, okay, <laughs> this, is, this is a show. 
But you can't blame the poor kiddo, right? I mean, their whole lives, they've depended on you. Their whole lives. Your presence, your availability, your hand to be there for them when they need it. And then one day, you, you leave them. Now, it's just for a few hours. But still, you aren't there. But the reason we do this as, as parents or as grandparents or aunties and uncles. We, we do this for at least two reasons. The first is we know that it will help the child to grow. They, they have to get to a place where they don't need uh, their, their parents or their grandparents or whoever around them all the time. But more importantly, we leave the second reason because we know who we're leaving them with. This is what makes that possible. We can walk away from the preschool or you can walk away from children's ministries downstairs here on a Sunday morning and drop your kids off because we know and trust who we're leaving them with. Now, Jesus, in our passage this morning that we just read a few moments ago, he's, he's actually now walking with his disciples to the very garden where he will be betrayed and taken away from them. He's getting ready to drop them off. And if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 16 with me. I want us to look there. He's getting ready to drop them off. And he's been preparing them for this moment for several weeks in terms of our Sundays. As we walk through John's gospel, you probably noticed, if, if you've been with us the whole time, we've really slowed down these last few weeks. We hit chapter 13, and suddenly we're not moving from kind of story to story. We are in one conversation for chapter after chapter after chapter between Jesus and his disciples. And we're nearing the end of that conversation. And Jesus has begun to warn them of all of the difficult things that are about to happen. He's, he's warned them, you're going to be persecuted. There's trouble coming. There's tribulation coming. It's going to tempt you to walk away from me. All this stuff. And on, and on top of all that, Jesus has been saying, I am leaving. I'm going. And the disciples, are, they're, you know, they're just clinging to his leg here. <laughs> You've seen the, when the toddler, right, grabs the leg and you're trying to walk away and it becomes one of these, right, you're just, you're just dragging. Or it becomes a tug of war, they like pull back, okay. Jesus, don't leave. The disciples are telling him, we won't be okay without you. We can't imagine that that's going to be okay. And Jesus in our passage, he says something to them in this moment that, that even parents don't say at the preschool drop-off. He doesn't just say, you're going to be okay. He doesn't just say, I'll be right back. He actually says to them, it's better if I go. It's better for you if I go. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, this is not Jesus being mopey, like, you'll be better off without little old me. That's not what he's doing. He, he literally means, you will be better off. You will have more joy, more endurance, more wisdom, more strength, more power if I go. Because he knows who he's leaving them with. He knows someone will come and will take care of them. A helper, he calls him in verse 7. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. 
but if I go, I will send him to you. When I leave, Jesus says, the helper will come to you. And a few Sundays ago, if you were with us, we talked about this helper. This, this helper has been on Jesus' mind actually quite a bit in this conversation with his disciples. Parakletos is the Greek word translated helper here in the, in the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's Jesus' name for him. Sometimes, depending on your translation, he's called the counselor or the advocate or the friend. And the idea is that he's all of those things and more. Jesus is promising that the Spirit, the helper, will come and that that is to our advantage. He's leaving us with someone actually better suited than himself to take care of us, which sounds crazy, I know. But that's what Jesus is saying. It's better to have the helper with us than to have Jesus physically stay with us. Now, this is a little mysterious, but Jesus, throughout John's gospel, and certainly in these last few chapters, has been reminding us again and again and again that he's going back to the Father. That's where he's going. And in theological circles, okay, that's called the ascension. So Jesus, after the resurrection, will ascend to heaven and sit down at the, at the Father's right hand. He has a very specific job to do that only he can do before his Father. He has to go. And it's to our advantage that he does. The helper is different. His job is to be with us everywhere all the time. Now, this can get confusing because our mind, like that, that, that English word spirit can mean a lot of different things. When we hear something like that, the spirit is everywhere all the time, we think the spirit is like the force from Star Wars. It's just a, it's a thing that's there. It's an invisible power without direction or personality. It, 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 or we think of like the spirit of Christmas, which is like a vibe you either feel or don't feel in any given moment. This is not how Jesus describes the helper. He's a person with a mind and a will. He's divine and eternal. He wants to make his home in anyone who follows Jesus and among those who follow Jesus, both. He's not just around like Jesus was for his followers. He's actually within to comfort and to strengthen and protect. This is what Jesus means when he says, it's to your advantage that I go. And in a, in a few specific ways that he's going to lay out here. But what the Spirit does uniquely, it's to our advantage in our passage today. And the first thing Jesus points out is that our helper convicts the world. It's the first big category. And you're going to have to forgive me because I'm going to slow us down here a little bit. Because there's two words just in that one sentence that I want to explain. The first here is the word world. It convicts the world. John, if you've noticed, talks a lot about the world in his gospel. It's the Greek word cosmos, where we get our word cosmos in English. But John doesn't mean it in the sense of the universe, like how we mean it. He uses this word to describe the counterfeit kingdom that opposes Jesus 
across time and culture. Even though it can look really different across time and culture. So it can look like the Pharisees and the religious teachers of Jesus' day, and it can look like the Romans, who were very different from them. It can look like the liberal democracies or, the, or dictatorships, okay? There's a spiritual darkness that animates a resistance to Jesus and his kingdom all the time. It's called the world. And until we actually put our faith in Jesus, we're a part of that counterfeit kingdom. And even when we put our faith in Jesus, we continually repent when the world comes out from us. We are, working, we are working the world out of ourselves as followers of Jesus too. That's the world. It's opposed to Jesus, sometimes in very overt ways, sometimes in very subtle ways. That second word there is convicts. This is another confusing word. The idea here in John is to confront someone's wrongdoing with the purpose of convincing them to change their mind or to change their behavior. So it's not a condemning conviction. It's not like a legal, like you're, you know, you're condemned, but it is confrontational. Like when you tell someone you love what you did was wrong, you aren't rejecting them, you're confronting them. That's what the Spirit is doing here. So, and remember, the posture of the Spirit as it convicts the world is one of love. For God so loved the world. That's John 3. He gave his son. So the Spirit's work is not spiteful, even though it's intense. And it can spur on backlash, which we talked a little bit about last week. So the Spirit convicts the world of three things that Jesus lays out. Look at verse 8. He'll convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you'll see me no longer and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged so the helper convicts the world of sin but not just of wrongdoing that's first but not just at the individual level that's probably where most of our minds go the spirit convicts me of sin or things I'm doing wrong. And that's true, but he actually does it at a scale and with a power that's hard for us to wrap our minds around until we really step back and look at it. For example, this dynamic of convicting the world of sin is really how we explain the difference between the Roman culture into which Christianity emerged 2,000 years ago so the first culture Christianity encountered outside of a Jewish culture was a Greco-Roman one in the Roman Empire. And the, the way we explain the difference between that culture and our modern concepts of right and wrong, you can actually measure the Spirit's work that way. And here's what I, here's what I mean. So Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, he's a historian from the UK, he published a book, this was only three years ago, called Dominion. And in this book, and it's long, <laughs> he, he actually makes the historical case that our values in what I'm going to call post-Roman Europe 
and then the United States and other Western countries, that the value system we experience today is not from the Enlightenment, is not from the scientific revolution, nor do they go back to the Greco-Roman philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. They go back to Jesus, Jesus' teaching. That where our culture is today is because of the Spirit's work to convict the world of sin. That when Jesus told his followers, it's just these 11 guys on the road to Gethsemane, when he told them to love each other as he loved them, when he taught them to love their neighbor, even their enemy, even their Samaritan neighbor, as themselves, that that teaching completely redefined and reshaped right and wrong for you and I in this room, even if we're not conscious of it. This is Holland's point. He said he, 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 said he converted from his enlightenment thinking when he saw this, that all of our modern concepts of human rights and justice and injustice and oppression and freedom and good and evil and sin and virtue, they all go back to Jesus. And Jesus' teaching, by the way, is rooted in the image of God of Genesis 1 and 2. See, now Holland is making the historical case. He's saying, look at where our modern ethic comes from. But Jesus is making a spiritual case. He's actually making a spiritual prediction for how this is going to happen. This is what the helper does. He convicts the world of sin. He changes things. And that explains how these humble fishermen from Palestine, a Roman province of Palestine, changed an empire with their message, which had changed the course of history and continues to do so all over the world, including places like Iran. The Spirit convicts of sin. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you've felt, you have felt that conviction. You've, you've felt the Spirit move like that in your life. You've, we were all at one point or another, if we followed Jesus, a part of the world that needed convicting of sin. There were things you did you knew you shouldn't do, but he's changing you. He's working in you. Convicts the world of sin. He also convicts the world of righteousness. That's the next thing Jesus says. And you, you kind of need to put quotes around righteousness there because John only uses this word here in his whole gospel, which is pretty unusual because it's a very common term throughout the rest of the Bible. But John only uses it here. And the, as best I can understand... What, what Jesus means here is he's meaning righteousness sarcastically. He, he means even what the world, and in particular, I think, on Jesus' mind, is the, is the religious of his day. What they call righteousness, the Spirit is actually working to undo that as well. <laughs> Which is unique about Spirit-led Christianity. Spirit-led Christianity does not just repent of the bad things we do. The Spirit actually convicts us for the ways we try to do good things for the wrong reasons. You might do the righteous thing, but with a wrong attitude or motivation. And the Spirit, what God requires is much deeper than that form of righteousness. And the Spirit convicts us of that too. 
And finally, he convicts the world of judgment. Okay, this, is, this one's a little confusing, but, but Jesus knows and has been saying over and over again that the world does not, does not judge him right. They don't know who he is. It doesn't understand him or comprehend him. It doesn't judge him rightly. And in fact, it will oppose them to the point of death just a few chapters from now. So the Spirit's work is to change hearts and minds, first and foremost, about who Jesus actually is. When we turn to Jesus, we believe he is who he says he is, that he actually cares for us, that his sacrifice is for us. That's the Spirit's convicting work when we realize those things. We're beginning to judge Jesus rightly and to actually then do what he says and to bring his kingdom to bear in all that we do. And that's why Jesus then warns about persecution. He says, if the world judges me poorly, how much more so will it judge you poorly? When you live out my kingdom in the world, because you're going to confront the world. And we've seen that. I mean, when God has told his people that things like racial inequality must be addressed. That's confrontational throughout time and culture. That the unborn must be protected. That the vulnerable must be protected. That we should show hospitality to the outsider and the immigrant. That things like cohabitation and pornography and sex outside of marriage are not biblical. They're not God's design. That forgiveness is needed no matter who you are that things like gossip are evil and are not loving to your neighbor, that we're supposed to love even our enemies. These, these are confrontational ways to live. They are hard to hear. But the world needs it, and we need it. And the helper's the one who convicts us to do it and empowers us to do it. It's to our advantage that he is here because he has this convicting power. But he also guides. This is the second advantage the Spirit gives. He convicts and then he guides. He guides God's people. And we need a guide. And you really know you need a guide when you actually have one. I don't know if you've ever been on like a big trip and hired an actual guide on your vacation. Uh, my family and I, we were, we were just in, uh, we got to go to London. It was awesome this past summer. And we did like a walking tour in history of London. And my parents wisely hired a guide. And he's amazing. There were things he pointed out I never would have known. So for example, he, 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 he pointed out the statue of Oliver Cromwell, which is outside of Westminster. I could have found this on my own. But what I didn't know was that the queen, when she would enter Westminster, she would turn away from this statue because this is the guy who got Charles I executed and kicked the monarchy out of England for a while. So the monarchy, they didn't like him very much. Didn't know that. The guide was also the one who pointed out to me why I kept sneezing when I was outside in London. Because he said, oh, well, there are sycamore trees everywhere in this city. They were a gift from the American colonies in the 17th century. And they took over. And I was like, well, it's a gift that keeps on giving. That's great, right? The guide knew where to look and why, and in a way that I never could do alone. I wouldn't see it. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
This is part of the reason we have confidence that the Bible is God's word, because Jesus promised through the power of his spirit to guide these disciples, these very disciples, into all the truth. And they wrote it down in what we now call the New Testament. This is what we believe, that the spirit, this very same spirit, alongside the human authors, inspired these books of the Bible and preserved the truth in them. And the Spirit, in the same way, He guides us right now together, right now, to understand and obey and love the words of Jesus. That's His work too. It's with the Spirit's help that we're guided into truth. And it's by the Spirit's help that we ask for guidance in the very difficult and confusing moments of each of our lives. That's a promise we have, that we're not alone in those moments. We have a guide. Just like the disciples needed in this moment where they know they're losing Jesus, they have spiritual help. Or when we don't know how to parent our children through their difficulties and their struggles, or we don't know how to deal with this problem we have at work or at school, or when we're wrestling with the past or we're anxious about the future. The Spirit is our guide. And it's to our advantage at every moment that He's with us. Even if we don't feel Him, He is always, always, always there. That's the promise. That's the deal. And this is kind of where Jesus finishes. Even though He is leaving, the Spirit's main job is to point back to Jesus in all that He does. Our helper preaches Jesus to us. That's the main thing he does in the life of a believer. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now this is how you know if the Spirit is really at work. You ask, is Jesus glorified? Is he exalted? Is he preached? Is he loved? Is he made much of? That, that's a spirit-filled church. Okay. It's one where much is made of Jesus and his word to us. It's also true if you're a follower of Jesus, this Holy Spirit is like a preacher who lives in you and he speaks through you. And this is important because we have all kinds of voices, both outside of us and within us, that are vying for our attention. And I know you hear them because I hear them too. They're voices of inadequacy or shame or rejection or despair or selfishness and entitlement or anger. There are sermons happening all the time. And so many of them sound nothing like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is trying to preach to you. He's trying to raise his voice above the rest. And his sermon, the way you know it's his sermon, is it is always, always, always about Jesus. It's about him. He is preaching Jesus' promises to our deepest fear and doubt. This is what, I think this is what Jesus means in verse 15 when he says, the Spirit takes what's mine and declares it to you. He takes my promises and he reminds you of them. He gives them back to you. 
When you're afraid, the sermon is that Jesus is with you. When you're overwhelmed, that Jesus will help you. When you're sad, that Jesus sees and understands you. When you're alone, that Jesus never leaves or forsakes you. When you're overcome with shame or guilt, that Jesus accepts you and forgives you. He is always and everywhere preaching to us, but are we listening? This is where I want... So Jesus started this conversation with a baffling statement. He said, it's to your advantage that I go. But I want us to end with a question. Are we taking advantage of our advantage? Are we taking advantage of our advantage? We need a helper. His conviction, his guidance, his preaching, his reminders. But do we receive them? Do we experience them? And if we want that power in our lives, the first thing we have to do is accept Jesus in faith. If you are not a follower of Jesus, but you want his help, you must simply ask. Ask him. Put your trust in him. The one who, a few short hours in this very story, is going to go to the cross for you and rise from the dead for you to make his home in you. You say to him, Jesus, I trust you. Rescue me. Forgive me. Help me. And once we've done that, now we listen to the Spirit. And there are lots of things we could say about listening to the Spirit, but I want to focus on one because our formed life journals this season of Lent, the focus of discipline is solitude for this season. Solitude. Which is time that we build into every day or week without screens, without sounds, without others, simply to listen and be quiet. And this is something we can all grow in. It's something that's difficult for us, I know. We're so connected all the time. And maybe it makes you uncomfortable even to think about being alone and with your Bible and a journal and just trying to listen and, and, and hear what the Spirit's doing in your life or through the Word. So I'm going to testify to this. Okay, I'm going to give you some incentive here. I, I personally read a passage and sat in silence with it a few weeks ago for 30 minutes. We actually did this as a part of our all-staff kind of training and developing time. This is a time of prayer. And in that 30 minutes, with this one particular story in front of me from the book of Mark, God showed me something that I needed to hear. The Spirit preached a sermon to me that I needed. It was not a prophecy, so don't worry. (laughs) Um, It was a specific reminder to me of something Jesus has already been saying but I needed the time and the space and the focused attention to hear it. I just wasn't hearing it. Are we attentive to him? Are we learning to listen to his spirit through his word and through his people, through his prompting? And here's what I want us to do. I want us to actually just take a minute. We're all here, we might as well, to practice this together. Let's take a minute before you run out of here, back to the noise and the busyness and the scheduling and all that stuff. And let's listen. Let's attend to God together. So if you have, whatever's in your hands, whatever might distract you, just put that down. Unless it's your baby, then you keep the baby. I heard that laugh over there. I knew what it was. Don't, Don't do that. 
And if you're able and if you're comfortable, um, actually I want you to put your hands on your lap and put your palms upward. This is just a symbol. This is just an openness to what God might say. And I'm gonna pr- I have three simple prayers and I'm going to give you space and quiet to, to, to pray them and think about them. So bow your heads with me. Spirit, convict me. Show me where I'm living wrongly or I'm thinking wrongly or I'm judging wrongly. Where am I being self-righteous toward others? Where am I ignoring your design even though I know I shouldn't? Spirit, guide me. Show me what I do not see. Teach me what I do not know. Direct my steps daily into the abundant life that Jesus promises to me. Spirit, preach Jesus to me. Give me his eyes as he sees me right now. What does he call me? What does he feel about me? What does he say about my fear, my loneliness, my shame? Holy Spirit, we know you are in us and among us right now. You are not far off. You are right here. And that's for our good. And I pray over each one here, Holy Spirit, speak to us this week. May we hear your voice above all others. And may we hear in your voice the beauty and glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.